You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers podcast. Today, we are going to talk about Theodore Roosevelt, Explorer. Yes, Teddy Roosevelt was an explorer, and this is not just some story of a rich, famous guy on a safari or a cushy boat ride. This is going to be a tale with starvation, hostile natives, murder, and the first mapping of a mysterious river in the heart of the Amazon rainforest. And Theodore Roosevelt, former president of the United States, will be in the thick of it all. It is, to be honest, a really fun story. So, to start today, I have a few notes. First, I want to mention that this story takes place in Brazil, which means there will be lots of Portuguese names. That means some bad pronunciations from me. Sorry about that. Second, I have put a map on our website, explorerspodcast.com, so that you can get a look-see at where all this stuff is happening. But keep in mind that all the names of the places that I mention are really kind of unimportant. At the core of our story, we have a group of men who are going to travel by boat upriver to the very edge of civilization in the Amazon. From there, it will be hundreds of miles trekking overland to the headwaters of a newly discovered river. And then it will be mapping that river. That is it. Third, I want to stress that this is not a biography of Teddy Roosevelt. In fact, this is really the story of the Roosevelt-Rondon Scientific Expedition. This was a survey expedition of a recently discovered river called Rio da Duvida, which translates as River of Doubt in English. The Rondon of the expedition title is Candido Rondon, a fascinating man who had discovered the river's headwaters in 1909 and will almost be as important to our story as Roosevelt. And fourth, this story is not something a lot of people know that much about. However, in 2005, author Candace Millard published a book called The River of Doubt, Theodore Roosevelt's Darkest Journey, chronicling the events of the expedition. I mention this because the book is outstanding, and I will rely heavily on it for our story. And if you want to know more about this topic, please pick up her book. It's well worth reading. So that is it for notes. Let's get going. For this story, the overarching element is Theodore Roosevelt. And so let's do some background on the man and the events leading up to his South American expedition. Again, this will be very, very high-level stuff. So if you want to know more about Roosevelt, please do some side research. He is an absolutely fascinating individual. Theodore Roosevelt was born in 1858 in New York City. He was the second child of Theodore Sr. and Martha, a.k.a. Mitty, Roosevelt. The family was wealthy and influential, science of East Coast aristocracy. They were distant cousins to the family of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Young Teddy Roosevelt suffered from poor health, specifically asthma. He would later write, quote, One of my memories is of my father walking up and down the room with me in his arms at night, when I was a very small person, and of sitting up in bed gasping, 
with my father and mother trying to help me, end quote. Now, despite these health issues, Theodore Sr. was not the kind of person to coddle his son. In fact, he pushed Teddy relentlessly, instilling in him a deep reservoir of energy and willpower to make up for his limitations. Teddy's father would be a huge influence on his son. He was hard and relentless, yet fair and generous. To be cruel or greedy or cowardly was amongst the gravest of sins. He stressed high morals, strength, exercise, and service. Young Teddy was determined to overcome his asthma and embraced a regimen of exercise. It became almost a mania with him, and in time he would overcome his health issues. Theodore Jr. would prove to be a good student. He learned several languages and showed great interest in the natural sciences. Teddy envisioned himself becoming a naturalist. However, in 1878, Theodore's world would be upended when his father would die from stomach cancer at the age of 46. The death devastated Teddy, but he responded like he did whenever tragedy struck. He would throw himself into whatever he could, making himself a better person, doing something bold, or however he could channel his energy. In college, Roosevelt would give up the natural sciences, disliking the focus on lab work and experimentation as opposed to field work. He would try Columbia Law School, but found the nuances of law to be frustrating. He would then turn to politics, joining the Republican Party. The result would be his election to the New York State Assembly at the age of 23. He would serve several terms, earning a reputation for fighting corruption. It was then that personal tragedy would again strike. In 1880, Roosevelt married socialite Alice Hathaway Lee. Their daughter, Alice Lee, was born in 1884. However, two days later, Roosevelt's mother would die of typhoid, and then, just 11 hours later, yes, that's 11 hours, Roosevelt's wife, Alice, would die of a kidney disorder that had been masked by her pregnancy. In his diary, Roosevelt wrote a large X on the page for that day and added, quote, the light has gone out of my life, end quote. Roosevelt would leave his infant daughter in the care of his sister and look for a new challenge to help him overcome his grief. He invested $80,000 in a ranch in the Dakota Territory and went west. The next few years, Roosevelt would make himself into a cattleman. He worked hard, and while far from becoming a frontiersman, he earned the respect of his workers by treating them fairly and with dignity, plus by working long and difficult hours. During this time, Roosevelt would stay in the eye of the public by writing articles for national magazines about frontier life. He also published three books on the subject. His time in the Dakotas gave him a love and a respect for the lands around him, and he started down the path as a conservationist. Now, a severe winter in 1886-87 would devastate Roosevelt's cattle herd, wiping out more than half of his investment. With that, he headed back east, again looking to rebound from tragedy. Roosevelt would marry Edith Kermit Carroll, the two going on to have five children together, as well as raise Roosevelt's daughter from his first marriage. Once back in New York, Roosevelt would drift into politics. He would become the New York City Police Commissioner and then the Assistant Secretary of the Navy in the William McKinley administration. Roosevelt was a big believer in naval power, and he would immediately implement a plan to aggressively grow and modernize the United States Navy. In 1898, the United States would get into war with Spain. Roosevelt would resign from his job and help form the 1st U.S. Volunteer Cavalry Regiment, a.k.a. the Rough Riders. For Roosevelt, this was his chance to go to war, which he saw as a grand, glorious adventure. He and his Rough Riders would become famous for their charge up Kettle Hill at the Battle of San Juan Hill on July 1, 1898. Roosevelt, who had been promoted to colonel during the campaign, would call the battle, quote, the great day of my life, end quote. War, Roosevelt felt, was a glorious and honorable undertaking. He looked at it with an almost religious zeal, even feeling that dying in battle would be the most noble way to perish. From this point on, Roosevelt always liked to be called Colonel Roosevelt, or simply Colonel. By the way, interesting note, 
I read that Roosevelt hated the name Teddy and preferred Theodore. Roosevelt's war heroics would vault him onto the national stage, and he had a lot of great qualities to boast about. He had bona fides as an anti-corruption politician. He was a Western rancher and frontiersman. He had foreign policy experience, and now he could add war hero to his resume. Add to the fact that he was an immensely energetic and charismatic man, and it was not hard to see a rising star. Roosevelt's next step was to be elected governor of New York in 1898, and then, two years later, he would get the nomination as vice president for McKinley's second term. The McKinley-Roosevelt ticket would carry the day. However, in September 1901, just six months into his second term, President McKinley was shot by an anarchist in Buffalo. He died eight days later. Theodore Roosevelt would be sworn in as the 26th president of the United States. He was only 42 years old, still the youngest person to ever serve as president. Now, I don't want to dwell on Roosevelt the president, but I do want to mention a few things about his time in office, just to give you a little taste of the man's character. First, he championed the cause of land conservation. As president, he established 150 national forests, 51 federal bird reserves, 5 national parks, and 18 national monuments. This was a big deal for Roosevelt. He recognized how important the natural world was, and he sought to keep it from being exploited or irrevocably altered or destroyed. Second, Roosevelt had a strong populist streak. He was not afraid to take on big business and even earned a reputation as a trustbuster and a warrior against corruption and greed. He genuinely believed in helping the average American. Third, on the world stage, he was not shy about stepping in when American interests were at stake, often using the growing United States Navy as a cudgel against those who resisted. He rankled many in Central America by getting construction of the Panama Canal started by encouraging the people of Panama, who were at this time part of Colombia, to declare their independence. In 1905, he brokered a peace between Russia and Japan, which would earn him a Nobel Peace Prize the following year. It all shows a man of vision and action, a man who was not afraid to be bold. Roosevelt would win the election of 1904, but declined to run in 1908. He felt that presidents should be limited to two terms, as a check against dictatorship. He would pass on his party's leadership to William Taft, his secretary of war, and an old friend. So it was 1909, and Roosevelt would find himself out of a job. He was only 50 years old, very young for someone who had held such a powerful office. He had twice as much energy as a man half his age. And thus, in March of that year, he would head to Africa on what was called the Smithsonian Roosevelt African Safari. The idea was to collect animal, insect, and plant specimens for the Smithsonian Institute and the American Museum of Natural History. More than 11,000 animals would be trapped or killed by the expedition, Plus, there were thousands of plants and fish and other items. It would take eight years to catalog everything. Roosevelt's 20-year-old son, Kermit, would participate in the safari and would prove to be an adventurous and brave young man. Kermit, who is quiet and introspective, will be very important to our story later on. Roosevelt would write a book on the expedition called African Game Trails. As you can imagine, there was some criticism for killing so many animals, but at the time, it was seen as a scientific endeavor as these animals were being collected for museums. Now, Roosevelt would come back to the United States and grow uneasy with the direction of now President Taft and the Republican Party. He saw them drifting from the progressive ideals that he had championed. This, of course, led to speculation of another Roosevelt presidential run. However, the party leaders were happy with Taft, who towed the company line. They did not like many of Roosevelt's more progressive policies, which they viewed as anti-business. In the end, Roosevelt would get dragged into a fight for the Republican nomination, However, it was Taft who would win, mostly due to the support of the Republican establishment. Despite his defeat, Roosevelt was convinced that Taft would get defeated by the Democrats who had nominated Woodrow Wilson, and thus he would make a radical move 
accepting the nomination of the newly formed Progressive Party. The party is more commonly known as the Bull Moose Party, after Roosevelt boasted he was, quote, as strong as a bull moose, end quote. Roosevelt went full populist with the nomination, embracing the progressive platform, which included things such as an eight-hour workday, workers' compensation, an inheritance tax, and women's suffrage. Now, there is one incident that occurred during the presidential campaign that I want to share, and that happened on October 14, 1912, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Roosevelt was given a speech when a delusional storekeeper named John Schrank shot him with a revolver. The bullet passed through a folded, 50-page manuscript that was in Roosevelt's jacket and then through his steel eyeglass case. It went five inches into Roosevelt's chest, lodging near the rib cage. The manuscript and eyeglass case likely saved Roosevelt's life. Now, you've just been shot, so you think you would let your people get you to the doctor and so forth. But not Roosevelt. Because he wasn't coughing up blood, the ex-president knew that the bullet had not reached his lungs, and thus he was okay for now. So the first thing Roosevelt did was to help stop the crowd from lynching the guy who had just shot him, and the second thing he did was to deliver his speech. Yes, the guy had just been shot in the chest, and he still insisted on making his speech. Now, would this be a short, cursory speech of a few minutes? Not a chance. It would go on for 90 minutes. Roosevelt, in his blood-soaked shirt, a bullet in his chest, went on for an hour and a half. He began the speech saying, quote, Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know whether you fully understand that I have been shot, but it takes more than that to kill a bull moose, end quote. When done, Roosevelt would finally go to the hospital. The bullet, by the way, would never be removed, as it was deemed more dangerous to take it out than leave it. Anyhow, I stress this moment because it is such a microcosm of the ex-president's character. He had a task to accomplish, and when adversity struck, he assessed the situation, weighed the risks involved, and plowed forward. Giving up, or letting others dictate the rules, was the absolute last option. This resolve was truly remarkable, and very much a hallmark of Roosevelt's character. Anyhow, the 1912 election would mark the end of Roosevelt's political career. The result had Wilson capturing 42% of the vote, compared to 27% for Roosevelt, 23% for Taft, and 6% for the socialist candidate, Eugene Debs. Roosevelt's showing was one of the best ever for a third-party candidate in an American presidential election, but it was not enough. Now, in the wake of the election, Roosevelt would find himself a pariah amongst many of the Republican establishment. These people were his friends and colleagues, and they felt, probably rightfully so, that he had split the party's vote and handed the victory to Wilson. Isolated and not thrilled at losing the election, Roosevelt did what he always did in these situations. He tried to find something bigger and bolder to fill his life. The man was, after all, still young. At 54, he was, as he said, as healthy as a bull moose. At 5'8 and 220 pounds, he was a solid, strong man with endless enthusiasm. And that takes us to South America, whose interior was one of the great geographic mysteries of the world. Roosevelt had always been fascinated by the continent, and he wanted to visit. Remember, Roosevelt had wanted to be a naturalist in his youth, and he was considered by many to be quite the expert. Writer Candace Millard, in her book The River of Doubt, Theodore Roosevelt's Darkest Journey, tells the story of naturalist John Burroughs visiting the presidential retreat in rural Virginia. Roosevelt was able to identify 75 of the 77 birds that the two men spotted, equaling Burroughs' numbers. Anyhow, in 1913, an Argentinian organization called Museo Social, an institution devoted to progressive intellectual thought, invited Roosevelt to give three lectures in South America, paying him $13,000, quite a lot of money at the time. The subject interested Roosevelt, but more importantly, he could use the trip to visit the continent. There, he could indulge in his fascination with animals, plants, insects, and geography. 
As a bonus, he would get to see his 24-year-old son, Kermit, who was working on building bridges in Brazil for the Anglo-Brazil Iron Company. With this in mind, Roosevelt began looking around for someone to sponsor a scientific expedition to the Amazon region. For this, he would turn to the American Museum of Natural History in New York. The museum's president, Henry Fairfield Osborne, was a friend of Roosevelt's. The museum was thrilled at the idea of sponsoring the endeavor. Roosevelt was a respected conservationist and naturalist, not to mention he was a beloved national figure. It would be a great coup for the museum to sponsor such an expedition. They figured it would be nothing dangerous, more of a travelogue showing off the wonders of the Amazon. And that gets us to Father John Augustine Zahm, a 61-year-old Catholic priest who taught chemistry and physics at Notre Dame. Zahm, while a Catholic priest, was a proponent of science and had even written a defense of evolution. He had been to the Amazon several times, writing a couple books about his travels. He liked to bill himself as an expert on South America and the Amazon, but he was more of a well-informed amateur than an expert. Still, Zahm had always dreamed of doing a grand tour of the Amazon and some of the other great rivers of the region. He had even met with Roosevelt back in 1908 and proposed such an expedition to the outgoing president. However, with the Safari of Africa already in the works, Roosevelt had to turn down the priest. Fast forward to 1913, and Zahm was still dreaming of his grand Amazon adventure. He was 61 years old and needed to go soon before he got too old. Thus, he reached out to Frank Chapman, the bird curator at the American Museum of Natural History, wondering if he knew someone who might be interested in making such a journey. Well, Chapman, as luck would have it, was scheduled to have lunch with Roosevelt the next day. He would invite Zahm to tag along. As noted, Roosevelt and Zahm knew and respected one another. And when Zahm told Roosevelt about his dream Amazon expedition, well, it was a match. Zahm was enthusiastic as heck about the project, which rubbed off on Roosevelt. The priest would put together the itinerary, arrange transportation, and order supplies, which suited Roosevelt just fine. And the museum was happy as well, as Zahm was not going to put together anything too taxing for either man. Roosevelt saw the upcoming journey as a, quote, delightful holiday, end quote. Father Zahm would then meet a New York City department store clerk named Anthony Fiala. The 43-year-old Fiala was working in the sporting goods section of Rogers, Pete & Company, and when he heard the details of Zahm's expedition, he expressed interest in joining. Fiala, it turns out, was an actual explorer. A polar explorer, mind you, but still an explorer. He'd gone on the Baldwin-Ziegler Polar Expedition in 1901-02 as the photographer, and he had led the follow-up Ziegler Polar Expedition from 1903 to 1905, which was an attempt to reach the North Pole. For Father Zahm, this was a stroke of good luck. He had no clue how to outfit an expedition, and, frankly, was not interested in the nitty-gritty details of such a thing. He saw himself as a big-picture guy, and thus Zahm had himself a quartermaster. Now, I do want to mention that Fiala had no experience in the tropics or South America, and the expedition he had led had nearly ended in disaster. His men had been stranded on the ice for two years, and his attempts to reach the pole had failed. While Fiala and his men had eventually been rescued, he had been criticized for his leadership. The general feeling was that the expedition had been poorly planned, badly managed, and undisciplined. One contemporary called Fiala, quote, utterly incompetent, end quote. That the guy was working in the sporting goods section of a department store should have been a big red flag. But for Father Zahm, he saw an experienced and enthusiastic explorer. And for Fiala, he saw this as a sort of redemption, a way to recover his reputation after the disaster of the Ziegler Polar Expedition. No matter, plans were set in motion for Roosevelt's expedition. The idea would be to start in Buenos Aires and travel by boat along some well-known rivers to the Amazon. Along the way, the expedition would see the wildlife, the landscapes, that sort of stuff. It would be a grand, but not strenuous, sightseeing tour. 
Now, the American Museum of Natural History was fine with Father Zahm's broad plan, but they wanted an experienced scientist to accompany the expedition, in particular a first-class naturalist. They would get two. The first was George Cherry, a 48-year-old explorer and naturalist. Cherry was one of the foremost bird collectors in the world and had more than a quarter of a century experience working in South American jungles. Author Candace Millard, in her book on the River of Doubt expedition, would say this of the man, quote, If you were about to go into the Amazonian jungle, George Cherry was the man you wanted by your side, end quote. Cherry had just returned from a long expedition abroad and was reluctant to participate. However, an excellent salary, the chance to work with the famous president, and the opportunity to go to some areas he had not gone to got him on board. The second naturalist was 26-year-old Leo Miller. While young, he was highly regarded and considered an outstanding addition. And so the preparations were made for the upcoming journey to South America. A few notes about these preparations. First, there was some debate about the type of boat to be used. Roosevelt's private secretary wanted big monster boats. Father Azam purchased two 800-pound steel-hulled motorboats, while Fiala ordered a pair of boats based on those used by the native peoples of North America. These were lightweight canoes, 19 feet long, or 6 meters, and only 160 pounds, or 73 kilograms. They had a cedar frame and a canvas cover. Despite being lightweight, they could carry a ton of cargo and three to four men. Fiala felt that the ability to easily portage the canoes would make them invaluable. Another note regarding the provisions. There were lots of them. I mean lots. And far too many luxuries. Next to necessities such as bacon, flour, and dehydrated potatoes were spices for cooking, marmalade, and Tabasco sauce eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The expedition would get underway on October 4, 1913, sailing from Brooklyn, New York, on the steamship Van Dyke. Teddy's wife, Edith, would come on the trip south, as well as Margaret Roosevelt, the daughter of Teddy's cousin. The 25-year-old Margaret was a favorite companion of Edith's. Edith would be able to spend some time with her son Kermit, but just as importantly, keep an eye on her husband. She was worried he would get himself involved in something more dangerous than a simple sightseeing tour. The destination of Van Dyke was Baia, Brazil. From there, it would be on to Rio de Janeiro. At this point, Roosevelt would set out on a speaking tour, while the rest of the men would prepare for the jungle expedition. Father Zahm's plan was to travel several rivers, including the Amazon, Piranha, Paraguay, Tapajos, Negro, and Orinoco. These were well-known and well-traveled. On the voyage south, the ship would pass by the great Amazon River, but not actually see it. The Amazon is, to be honest, extraordinary. At 4,000 miles, or 6,440 kilometers, 
It is the second largest river in the world, but by discharge, it is the largest and not even close. The Amazon discharges five times the volume of water than its nearest rival, the Congo, in Africa. The river has thousands of tributaries. This is because the Andes Mountains, on the western side of the continent, force most of the rivers to flow into the Amazon basin. Rivers from the north flow south, most eventually emptying into the Amazon or one of its tributaries. And rivers from the Brazilian highlands flow north and east, again, into the Amazon. It is an extraordinary natural wonder, something that tantalized the always curious Roosevelt. On October 18, 1913, the Van Dyke would dock in Bahia on the east coast of Brazil. Thousands of people were waiting to greet the former American president, including Roosevelt's son, Kermit. I want to take a moment and talk about Kermit Roosevelt, as he will play an important part in our story. As noted earlier, Kermit was working on building bridges in the Brazilian interior. He was just 24 years old, but was successful and independent. He took pride in not needing support from his family. Kermit had made his father proud. He was described as brave, even fearless. He'd gone on his father's African expedition back in 1909 and more than proved his mettle. Kermit spoke somewhere around 10 languages and was learning Portuguese. His job in Brazil paid well, but it was dangerous. One time, Kermit had fallen 35 feet, or 11 meters, from a collapsing bridge, breaking some ribs, dislocating a knee, and losing some teeth. In a lot of ways, he was just like his father. Curious, adventurous, brave. However, personality-wise, they were very different. Kermit was sensitive and quiet, prone to bouts of brooding. His job in Brazil kept him isolated from the world, which was not always good for him. At this time, Kermit's attention was on Belle Ward, a girl he had met the year before. The two had maintained a long-distance relationship, but Kermit, worried someone would win her affections first, had recently proposed via a letter. Now he waited anxiously for a reply. Kermit's job was part of the growing effort by the Brazilian government to expand communications and transportation lines into the interior of the country. And that tidbit will take our story from Kermit Roosevelt to rubber. Yes, rubber. You see, rubber was one of the big reasons for this expansion of communications throughout the Amazon. Rubber was a big industry in Brazil, growing in concert with the automobile industry. Initially, commercial rubber was only found in Brazil, and as the auto industry grew, there was a rubber boom. However, rubber was difficult to extract. The rubber trees were found in the wilds of the Amazon basin, which were difficult to get to and dangerous. Thus, there was a desire to expand the railroads, roads, and telegraph system. However, the rubber industry in Brazil would go bust right around the time of Roosevelt's visit due to the fact that the British had taken seeds of the rubber tree and planted them in Southeast Asia and Central Africa decades earlier. These rubber plantations were now coming to fruition, and that rubber was much easier and safer to harvest. This led to the crash of the Brazilian rubber industry. So, with all of this in mind, Roosevelt and his team arrived in Brazil, and it was here that the ex-president began to wonder if the upcoming expedition would offer a sufficient challenge. I mean, here he was in South America, the chance to be a true explorer, yet what was planned was not much more than a sightseeing jaunt. Wasn't there anything more challenging or important available? Enter Colonel Candido Marino de Silva Rondon, the 48-year-old commander of the Strategic Telegraph Commission. Rondon, a married man and a father of seven, was probably the most experienced and respected explorer in all of Brazil. He had spent half of his life exploring the Amazon, crossing more than 14,000 miles, or 22,500 kilometers, of wilderness, most of it unknown to the world. As the commander of the Telegraph Commission, he was in charge of building the nation's telegraph system. Rondon was offered up as a guide to Roosevelt's expedition by his government. However, he did not want to babysit a bunch of Americans on a river cruise. He only wanted to participate if it was a true scientific endeavor. And that is when the Brazilian Minister of Foreign Affairs, 
would suggest to Roosevelt that his group might want to explore an unknown river. This piqued the interest of the former president, as traveling on a beaten route offered no challenge or glory. Roosevelt said he wanted to do something that would, quote, unravel the unknown aspects of our wilds, end quote. Rondon and the Brazilians would offer Roosevelt five options. The most dangerous of these options was the Rio da Duvida, the River of Doubt. Roosevelt was hooked when he heard the story. To go map an unknown river was just too much for him. He had always wanted to be an explorer, like David Livingston in Africa, and this would be his chance. It would be scientifically important and offer him the most prestige and fame, and it would put the defeat of 1912 in the rearview mirror. Also, Roosevelt, while healthy and energetic, realized he was getting older. Of the expedition, he said it would be his, quote, last chance to be a boy, end quote. The River of Doubt had been discovered by Rondon in 1909 on a telegraph line expedition. He and his men had found the headwaters, but they had barely followed it, as Rondon had quickly realized exploring the river would require its own expedition. Now the decision to trace the route of the River of Doubt was wildly dangerous. Nothing was known about it, including its length, the location of whirlpools and rapids, not even the mouth. And then there were the natives. This would be going into one of the densest and least explored jungles in the world. The natives were often fiercely resistant to interlopers. Now this new plan certainly turned things upside down. Roosevelt told each of the expedition's members that they were not obliged to participate. However, all of them, even the 61-year-old priest, Father Zam, declined the option to stay behind. However, when word of the new plans reached New York, Henry Fairfield Osborne, the president of the American Museum of Natural History, was mortified. He was certain that Roosevelt wouldn't come back. Osborne would send Roosevelt a letter telling him to stick to the original plan. Roosevelt's reply was as follows, quote, Tell Osborne I have already lived and enjoyed as much life as any nine other men I know. I have had my full share, and if it is necessary for me to leave my bones in South America, I am quite ready to do so. End quote. That is, by the way, a very Teddy Roosevelt response. Anyhow, with that decided, Edith Roosevelt's fears about what her husband would do had come to fruition. So, while the expedition got organized, Roosevelt would go on a South American tour, giving speeches in Argentina, Chile, and Brazil. He would then return to Rio de Janeiro, where he prepared to head upriver to join his team in the continent's interior on the Paraguay River. Before departing, Kermit Roosevelt got a letter from Bell accepting his proposal of marriage. It lifted a huge weight off the young man's shoulders. Kermit's father was happy for his son. Regarding Kermit, he had not initially planned on going on the upcoming expedition. However, both he and his mother, Edith, were concerned about Teddy. They were worried he was getting himself into a situation he wasn't prepared for. Edith asked her son to look after his father, which Kermit pledged to do. So while Roosevelt was on his tour, the men moved up the Uruguay River, which connected to the Paraguay River. They would gather at the frontier town of Carumba. This was roughly a thousand miles, as the crow flies, north of Rio de Janeiro. Taking ships up the river, it was probably twice that length. On December 12th, at the junction of the Paraguay and Upper River on Brazil's southern border, Roosevelt would arrive on the personal yacht-slash-gunboat of the president of Paraguay. It was there that Roosevelt would meet Colonel Candido Rondon. I want to take this opportunity to talk a bit about Rondon. Rondon was 48 years old, short, 5'3", with dark skin and impeccable posture. When he met Roosevelt, he was wearing perfect dress whites. Rondon had been born in the remote western Brazilian state of Mato Grosso. Rondon was of both Indian and European descent. His father and mother had both died from smallpox by the time Rondon was two years old. He was then cared for by his grandparents before they too died, and then by an uncle. Rondon had moved to Rio de Janeiro when he was 16, which would have been quite the culture shock for the kid from the frontier. 
He was immensely poor, but he had discipline, drive, and willpower enough for an entire regiment of men. He would join the army and then go to officer's school, graduating in 1888. Rondon was an unusual man. He didn't want to just be a soldier. He wanted to help the indigenous peoples of the Amazon, of whom he was one. He would say, quote, I want to bring the civilization which I have acquired to my Mato Grosso and my Amazonia to the jungle and its tribes, end quote. As part of this effort, he was determined to do it in a nonviolent way, a rarity for the time. At only 25 years old, he had been chosen to lead the Strategic Telegraph Commission, which quickly became known as the Rondon Commission. His mission was to establish communications into the deepest parts of Brazil. This meant direct contact with native peoples in isolated areas, people who had often never seen outsiders before. The exploits of Rondon were, by this time, legendary. What he had accomplished was astounding. However, it came at a price as his expeditions were long, exhausting, and dangerous. Disease, Indian attacks, and starvation were commonplace. On one expedition, Rondon had left with 81 men. Only 30 returned. 17 had deserted, and the rest were either dead or hospitalized. The job was so tough, the military often sent men to the Telegraph Commission as punishment, and the commission often recruited directly from prisons. Still, Rondon got things done. The men were devoted to him, and he was a champion to the people of the Amazon. So, in 1909, Rondon led an expedition out of the frontier post of Tapuruan. I probably messed up that pronunciation and hacked its way into the jungles to set up a new telegraph route. Over 237 days, they surveyed 600 miles of unmapped territory, or nearly 1,000 kilometers. On this expedition, they had come across the headwaters of an unknown river, which Rondon dubbed the Rio da Vida, the River of Doubt. The men had explored a short way down the river, but nothing more. Rondon had thus filed away the discovery with the hope of returning. Well, that moment was now upon him. Roosevelt and Rondon had one major issue between them, language. Rondon didn't speak English, and Roosevelt didn't speak Portuguese. Thus, the two men conversed in French, which neither was fluent in. Although when Kermit Roosevelt was present, he could translate. Now, despite the language barrier, the two men quickly came to understand and respect one another. Both were energetic and had personalities that compelled men to listen to them. If Rondon had been concerned that Roosevelt would be a slacker, well, he need not have worried. By the way, with the addition of Rondon, the expedition's name had been changed to the Roosevelt-Rondon Scientific Expedition. The two men would continue on to Carumba, reaching it three days later. There, the expedition prepared to depart. The team included Roosevelt, Rondon, Father Zom, the quartermaster, Anthony Fiala, the naturalist, Cherry and Miller, Kermit Roosevelt, and a group of Brazilian frontiersmen called Camaradas, or comrades in English. Rondon was accompanied by some Brazilian officers. There are also a few other people who I will mention as needed during the show. Now, getting to this point, a thousand miles inland, which had taken weeks, had been the easy part. Now, the expedition had to continue upriver to the outpost of Tapiru Oan, and then strike out overland, following the path Rondon had taken four years earlier, to the River of Doubt. This was a 400-mile journey, or 645 kilometers, across the Brazilian highlands. The trek would cross open plains, deserts, and plunge the men into dense forests. There, they would find the black, fast-moving waters of the River of Doubt, and the edge of the unknown. It was, to be honest, sort of madness for Roosevelt to be doing this. The big issue was that the expedition was moving into the highlands of Brazil. The highlands rise to an average elevation of 3,300 feet, or 1,000 meters. This meant that the River Doubt had to descend most of that height into the Amazon River Basin. That meant that there would likely be rapids, maybe even waterfalls, ahead of them. The big danger is that once you start down a river from that altitude, it's really hard to go back the way you came if you need to. 
And if the river became impossible to go down, well, let's just say it would not be good. I'm going to leave the men of the Roosevelt Rondon scientific expedition here until the next episode. In part two of our series, we will follow them across the Brazilian highlands and to the River of Doubt. And if you haven't figured it out by now, things are not going to go as planned, making this a thrilling and deadly journey. I want to wrap up today by saying thanks to all of the show's friends. A big nod goes out to our Patreon supporters. This includes Collier, David P., Donnell, Eileen, Adam, Craig, David K., Eamon, Gregory, John Paul, Philip, Ralph, Roger, Rudy, and all of you who helped the show financially. Thank you so much. As a note, I do get messages from people saying things like, hey, I want to support your show, but money is tight right now, that sort of thing. And that is totally cool. I never want to make supporting the show being a burden on anyone. Help when you can. Heck, it might not be for 10 or 20 years. And it doesn't have to be this podcast. Just remember these moments, so when you do have some financial flexibility in your life, you can support an independent content creator. And always remember, just listening to the show helps out. Not to mention posting nice reviews on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or by sharing the show on Twitter or Facebook or wherever. None of that costs you a dime, just a couple of minutes of your time. In the end, the greatest thing for me is that people are enjoying these stories, and that so many of you want to listen and be a part of the podcast. So thank you so much. I want to wrap up by saying that the Explorers podcast is now part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Go to airwavemedia.com to check out other independent podcasts, such as The History of the Great War and The History of the Second World War, and many others. So that is it. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please take care, and I will see you next time. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.